Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I am grateful for you listening to the 35th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Years podcast. 35 is, of course, the jersey number of Eric Hosmer, who once threw down a credit card at the Power and Light District to buy everyone in Kansas City a drink. Our goal today, as always, is to be worth your time. This week, we'll do that with a point about one of the most successful careers in Kansas City sports history that ended this week. A great batch of questions that hit on everything from when it's okay to wear your team's favorite gear to the similarities between Andy Reid and Ted Lasso. We're going to finish with some clips from a conversation with Angie and Chris Long, the Kansas Cityans who are now principal owners of our city's new NWSL team. I talked to them and others about the challenges and opportunities in this thing. And I hope you read the column that's on KansasCity.com right now. Uh, but I thought hearing their voices and hearing it in their own words uh, adds something as well. Okay, the, the Star is running a special promotion for the Sports Pass right now. A dollar a month for three months for all of our sports coverage, including more original Chiefs content than you can find anywhere else. You can find that on our website or just reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and, and I'll send you the link. Okay, um, you know, during football season especially, this this top section is usually going to be about the Chiefs one way or the other, but uh, but not today. Matt Beasler, for the first time in 12 years, is not employed as a defender for Sporting Kansas City. On a pure, cold, analytical soccer level, right, like, this makes sense. You know, the decision is sound. Beasler is well paid. He's earned that. But he's not the same player he once was. Um, you know, part of Sporting's ability to have such consistent success over the years Nine playoffs in 10 years. Um, it's Peter Burmese's ability to, you know, in his words, stay ahead of the curve. He makes these soccer decisions based on soccer, not emotions. And if we're honest, there were some decisions he could have made last year. You know, this is sporting kind of, you know, leaning into a younger roster, a different roster. And it makes all the soccer sense in the world. But we're losing something here, too. Right. Um, you know, Beasler posted that he's looking forward to free agency. You know, he's proud and smart and still a good player. I can't imagine that anyone in Kansas City doesn't wish him well. It's going to be weird seeing sporting without him. You know, he has played more minutes, made more starts played in more games than anybody in franchise history. And there's going to be this window of time, a few years probably, between him playing his last game for sporting and the the night that the team officially honors his career with, you know, a shirt retirement and, you know, putting him on the wall of legends. Beasler's emotions must be twisted in knots right now. Um, he's had a great career, a charmed career. He's had the chance to star for his hometown team as it built from, you know, kind of irrelevant to an important and beloved part of our local sports scene. And, you know, that process, it was much bigger than Beasler, obviously. Let's be clear about that. But he was a big part of it, too. And, you know, Kansas City is a place that likes Kansas City. You know what I mean? Like, we like local. And, you know, Beasler broke barriers in that way. Like, he's the first person from here to play in the World Cup. Um, he start, started all four matches in 2014. You know, he, he is the example that... You know, moms and dads and coaches have been using for years around town. That's an incredibly cool thing. I think about this too. Like, Tom Watson is the most successful athlete who ever grew up here. You know, eight time majors champion and, you know, for a time, one of the most famous athletes in the world. You know, Frank White is fairly close, you know, eight time gold glove winner, five time all star, World Series champion, ALCS MVP. Maurice Green, um, he's in that group, once the world's fastest man. Olympic gold medals. You know, I, I would make the case that Beasler is in that group. 
it, you know, just what a consequential career. Like growing up at a time when he had no American-born soccer stars to emulate. And then he grew into one himself and did it in his hometown. His time here, not always easy, right? Like not always successful. Ups and downs like we all have in life. But he made the most of it, didn't he? I mean, you know, Matt can't know what the rest of his life will be. He wants to keep playing, and after that, he'll have all sorts of options. You know, you could see him getting into coaching, broadcasting, scouting. You could see him run a youth program or get away from soccer and and use other skills. He's in a good place that way, even as, you know, this transition must feel a little scary or awkward. Um, You know, as a soccer player, you know, you could say that it's unlikely he'll ever have it as good as he had it here, you know, helping his hometown win trophies. And, you know, as a soccer club, you could say it's unlikely that sporting will ever have it as good as they had it when a hometown kid was helping them win trophies. That was It was a terrific pairing and one that I know made it easier for a lot of people to cheer, to get invested in the team. Um, you know, nothing lasts forever, uh, especially in sports, right? Except for the <laughs> except for the memories and the impact. And on that point, there aren't many who've done better here than, than Matt Beasler. Okay, before we move on to the rest of the show, this podcast is free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you one more time to join us behind the paywall. We work hard to bring you information and perspectives you can't get in other places. Uh, We have the most journalists working the Chiefs beat, the most combined experience around the team, the most perspectives. Please help support us. Give the Sports Pass a try again. Dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. You can find those links online or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, email, and, and I'll send them along. Okay, quick break, and then we are back with some questions. If you'd like to participate in next week's show, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Call anytime, 816-234-4365. Or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDLE. Anyway, uh, quick break, then we're back with those questions. The first about when to wear your team's favorite gear. Hi, this is William from Overland Park. Uh, short-time listener, first-time caller. Just wanted to talk about the K-State game and get your guys' opinion on whether or not, as a loyal K-State fan, if it's embarrassing to rock the K-State gear the day after losing to Fort Hay State as a, as a sign of um, togetherness to support your guys or if it's just embarrassing because they lost to Fort Hay State. Thanks. Appreciate you taking the time. Good job, Sam. Wear it. Brother William, uh, you know, anybody can wear their purple stuff after the football team beats Oklahoma, right? Um, but can you wear it after you get a 69 burger from Texas? Anybody can wear their K-State stuff when they beat Kansas in basketball. But can you wear it after they lose to an 0-3 MIAA team that was playing without its head coach? These are the questions you ask yourself, my man. Be proud. That's your school. This is when the bonds are made. Uh, I'm going to get into a little bit of a tangent here. Uh, This is just where my mind goes. I know it's weird, but um, I promise you this is true. Uh, I'm going to start to answer this question by saying that I'm going to talk about the worst thing that I've seen from Patrick Mahomes. I know it's weird. I get it. I've mentioned here before, our, our six-year-old is infatuated with football, just loves it, loves everything about it. The, the flair on the uniforms, like visors and towels, to, trying to think along with the coaches about when they're passing or when they're blitzing. But you guys, this is basically like the third football season that he's been aware that there is football, that that's a thing. 
And that means that for as long as he can remember, Mahomes has been his home team, hometown team's quarterback, right? Like he doesn't know about 38 to 10 or Lynn Elliott or Elvis Gerbach or losing a home playoff game without giving up a touchdown. What, what he knows is the unicorn wins MVP, then the unicorn wins the Super Bowl, and now the team that he roots for is 11 and 1 and the Super Bowl favorite. He, he is shamelessly spoiled is what I'm saying. And no matter how much I try to tell him, it's, you know, it's not normal to see receivers backflip into end zones or quarterbacks throw like sidearm passes against their momentum and under and through defenders on third down with the game on the line. Uh, I Like I can try to tell him this, but I'm pretty sure he thinks I'm lying because to him, that is normal. Um, you know, like when, when the Chiefs play at night, we let them do their showers early and watch the first half and all that stuff, you know, so they can, um, you know, watch the whole first half before they go to bed. And the other night, uh, the the Broncos game that meant that bedtime came with the Chiefs down ten to nine and not having scored a touchdown and I mean it was like he ordered ice cream and we gave him a mound of mud uh, I mean just like so spoiled and I worry about that I mean like I want him to be happy obviously but I guess what I'm saying is I want him to grow up to be the kind of person who wears his college's stuff the day after they lose to an zero and three MIAA team uh, you have to support your friends and family through the good and the bad right uh, it's just that. Right now, Mahomes is teaching all of us to only expect the good. Um, there's a reckoning coming, is what I'm saying. And, um, you know, with the Chiefs, maybe that doesn't happen until my first graders in college. But um, anyway, big tangent. Here's Skyler. Hi, Sam. This is Skyler calling from Hayes, Kansas. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I was just wondering for the podcast if um, I, the Chiefs obviously have taken strides in their past defense over the past couple of years under Spagnuolo, uh, but their run defense is, is clearly still quite terrible, and uh, their linebacking core is pretty weak. Do you think that will ever come back to haunt them, or do you think that because our offense is so electric that our lack of run defense isn't going to matter in the end? So just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, I mean, um, I've been thinking that for a long time, and I believe it with my heart, but I've also been watching this team, and I'm seeing the same thing you are, um, that everybody is, that it really just hasn't haunted them yet, right? Like, um, the last time it did, really, I mean, I, I think to find a time that the run defense really mattered in a big spot, like in a negative way, you, I think you have to go all the way back to the 2017 playoff game, you know, when the, when the Titans got up big, uh, and then they just choked out the Chiefs with Derrick Henry. I mean, really, that's it, right? Like, I mean, some of you might bring up the 2018 AFC Championship game, and the Patriots did run it a lot that night, but Tom Brady threw 46 passes. Um, that's more than Mahomes threw that night, 15 more, actually. And and a lot of those were in the biggest spots, especially, you know, down the stretch when they could um, <laughs> when they could isolate what was left of Eric Berry in man coverage. But um, sorry, I don't mean to bring up nightmares for you guys. Um, <laughs> I, I thought the 49ers missed a chance in the Super Bowl, to be honest. I, I still don't know why they went away from the run like that. Um, but this fits the point that I'm making. Like when when I, like me, Sam, when, when I sit here and watch the games, I'm often left wondering why the team on the other side is running it more uh, because I think that would help their chances of success but I also have to acknowledge that I'm watching the team on the other side not run it more you know what I mean um, so I feel like expecting opponents to run it more going forward like I'm just going to need to see it before I get worried about it uh, especially because there are enough other things that could go wrong with the Chiefs right like um, you know the pass rush the red zone offense I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that as we go on but um, okay here's Dan 
This is Dan from Overland Park. Given all the sports have played full or partial seasons without fans, a limited number of fans, or the pod system, what's been the impact on officiating? Is there any quantitative analysis on the subject? I'm mostly curious about the strike zone in baseball or flags in football. Uh, this is really interesting. Um, penalties are down, uh, but I think it's worth being cautious here about like causation, right? Because I don't have the numbers on whether penalties are down for road teams you know, and or up for home teams. Um, the NFL has a lot of reasons to want fewer penalties called. And, you know, that could be completely independent of having games with with limited um, or no fans. What I can tell you is that road teams are winning more often this year. Um, if my math is right, road teams so far right now are a cumulative three games under 500. And that home road split has really stayed close to even all season. And normally this is, you know, home teams are winning 55 to 60 percent of the of the time. So uh, we know from research, including a chapter, the wonderful book Scorecasting, you know, home field advantage is tied in every sport. Basically, it, it can be isolated to officiating. Officials are human and they tend to make more calls that favor the team everyone is cheering for. And, you know, part of the proof, and this is just only part of it, but I think it's really interesting, is that home field across many leagues, many, many different sports, even different continents, it shrinks as instant replay usage grows. So in that way, it's an interesting year to have a new playoff format, right? Like this is a bit anecdotal, but, you know, the Chiefs and Steelers, they're, they're both 11 and 1, and, and each of those teams is undefeated on the road. Uh, the loss came at home. So, you know, look, I, I know you didn't ask about like this specific point, but when we're talking about playoff seating, um, you know, hopefully next year we're back to talking more about the importance of home field advantage. But for now, I don't think it makes a lick of difference whether that potential Chiefs Steelers AFC championship game, whether that's going to be at, at Heinz Field or at Arrowhead. Um, I think what does matter a little bit more is which team would get to skip the first round of the playoffs. Um, not necessarily, you know, not because they might lose nearly as much as just. The rest, right? Um, I think the the prep helps, the body helps. I think all those things really matter. So, um, okay, got time for one more, uh, one more cheese question, like sort of, <laughs> sort of at least. Um, here's Ryan. Hey, Sam, it's Ryan. You know, I've been watching Ted Lasso recently, which if you haven't, you definitely need to. And one of the big things in this show is the dynamics between the coach and the players and like how he builds relationships with each of these guys in order to, you know, not just connect with them uh, as people, but, you know, also, I guess, like as, as a leader and to try to make them better at their craft. I was thinking maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between being able to do that with such a small roster like a soccer team or even like a baseball team or a basketball team where you're only talking about maybe 20 guys and then this uncanny ability for Andy Reid to do that with, you know, a roster of upwards of 65 guys right now. I think it's probably one of the most, I don't know, underreported seems aggressive, but like one of the things that we don't talk enough about the sheer responsibility of an NFL head coach with a roster of that size to be able to make connections with all of these players and all of his staff and just be a beloved man in this league for so long, the volume of people that he has to connect with is really, really remarkable. Um, and I wonder if he's ever been asked about that, if, if that's something that's even been thought that much about, like how difficult it is 
in the NFL versus some of these other sports simply because of the number of players that we're talking about. I don't know. Just something to think about. I'm a few episodes into the show, actually, uh, Ted Lasso, and uh, I'm enjoying it. Um, I haven't thought about that connection with Andy Reid here, uh, but I do think you're hitting on one of his great strengths. Like Andy, he's like really smart, right? Uh, tireless worker. He's open-minded. He's egoless. He's a lot of great things, but yeah, I think this is part of his magic too. Like guys love playing for him and, 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 and guys love coaching for him too. I think that matters as well. Um, you know, I can talk a little bit about the reasons why, but, uh, I'm going to warn you right now. Uh, that this is going to sound like some incredibly like it, it's, it's just not going to be like this incredible, like brilliant tact that he has. Right. Like um, it's the way I describe him. He's just going to sound like a respectful human being. Right. But here goes like he's honest. Um, he gives his players power. And, you know, that's everything from these gadget plays that we've talked a lot about in recent weeks to, you know, what they serve in the cafeteria or, you know, what the weight room looks like, how practices are run. You know, he's not letting the players make decisions necessarily, but he's letting them in on the process. Um, you know, it's collaborative. It's like this. It's a two way conversation. Um, he has the player's best interests in mind. Uh, he protects them publicly. Um, he boosts them internally. He won't ask for something from them without giving something in return, um, or at the very least, without a mutual understanding that what he's asking is, you know, he's doing everything in his power to help the greater good, right? Um, and I told you, this is all pretty benign, right? Um, but <laughs> right or wrong, it can be a stark contrast to how a lot of coaches operate. And, you know, some do that on purpose. You know, they believe it's the best way to win, and, and some even pull that off. And, you know, I, sh I should say here, like, there's not one way to do it, right? Um you know, you, you can be super strict and restrictive and successful doing that. Um, you know, we see that with Bill Belichick, among others, but it just has to be genuine. Um, that's what I think is important. Like, it's got to be real. You have to be sincere. And that's a spot where Andy excels. Um, you know, one point I want to make here, like this is not Andy Reid making deep personal connections with 53 guys like at all time. Um, right. Like He does some of that. But, you know, a football team that's just too big, there's too many moving parts for one man to do it all. And that's why, you know, there's coordinators, position coaches, all these things. And that's another strength of Andy's. Um, he motivates good good coaches to work for him. And, and when they do, he empowers them and he motivates them to be even better. And that's a huge part of the success, too. It's not just Andy to each of the 53. It's Andy to the coaches as well. And then they kind of spread the gospel um, to the 53. So, okay, cool. Um, we've got a great third segment for you guys this week. Um, it's built around conversations I had with uh, Angie and Chris Long, the uh, the owners of Kansas City's new NWSL team. Uh, quick break, and then we will get right to that. Okay, I'm excited about all our shows and all of our third segments, but particularly so about this one. Angie and Chris Long are Kansasidians. Angie grew up here, and now she and her husband, Chris, are raising four kids here. Uh, they started their own business here, Palmer Square, an investment management firm that has $12 billion in assets. They are legit, is, is what I'm saying. They also happen to love soccer and love Kansas City and believe both would be better off with a professional women's team here. Now, whatever it's worth, I happen to agree with them, and I also believe, like, when I 
saw this news, my first thought was just, it is bonkers to start a new sports team right now, right? Like teams are losing piles of cash. Like if anything, this would be a good time for somebody to get out of the sports business. And, um, you know, because who knows what this is all going to look like on the other side. Uh, You know, these are all real challenges um, that the Longs will have. And I asked them about that this week. Here's what Angie said. Well, I think, you know, the the pandemic obviously has been a challenge for a lot of sports teams. I will say that I'd much rather be in the position that we are this year where it seems like there is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Almost every league has found a way to deal with it, even at the most difficult times, um, with much more uncertainty. Uh, you can be, you can feel like you can prepare for what that might mean, whereas when it all happened so fast in, in March, you know, th- there was n- no ability to have been prepared for that. It's a good point. And um, I wrote something more in depth on all this. And obviously, I hope you read the columns on KansasCity.com right now. Um, and I was able to get a lot of different perspectives, including, you know, some who are involved in the team that left town three years ago. Uh, the biggest thing that came through for me this week, and I want to stress that this perspective came from people who liked the previous ownership groups, people who don't even know the Longs. Um, I mean, th- this even came from people who were involved in the previous ownership groups. But the, the biggest thing that came through for me this week is that the, that old team was almost doomed from the start. Um, the ownership just didn't have the juice. Um, they didn't invest, uh, didn't give players proper support. Um, didn't make themselves part of Kansas City. And that's a really big whiff. You know, um, Kansas City, uh, we are like some other places around the country. Like we will go above and beyond with support, uh, particularly if it's local. And, you know, obviously we love sports here, but we need to feel like it's collective, Um, you know, that there's something coming back, um, that it's something with a chance to last. Um, The other reason that's a really big whiff, and really this is pretty inexcusable, but like women's soccer players are basically like trained to sell their sport. Um, you know, they, they are all in with this kind of, they, like being an ambassador is like part of the job. Um, and it, so it's not like the players that were here before weren't willing to make those connections, you know, to do their part. It's just it, like the basic logistics and support that like competent management would provide. It just didn't exist. And the longs are such a departure from that that it's almost not worth talking about except for in this context of what a departure it is from the previous things. I I think for a lot of people, when you hear NWSL, you think the team that only lasted five seasons from before, but um, gosh, the the people in charge are just so different. And, you know, if the the first team proved that, you know, bad ownership can ruin even a winning club, and, and that team won two titles in five years, you guys, um, you know, then the longs sound, I mean, they are fully committed to test what can happen with ownership willing to invest, to support. Um, they've said they want to be the NW, NWSL's most supportive owners, by the way, which, you know, that's a heck of a statement. Um, so I asked what they meant by that. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, a player first mentality. You know, it, it's, it's your greatest asset. Um, and supporting them and having their back to, to the maximum, that's that's really part 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 one. Um, and, part- and just to, just to add on that a little bit more, I think if you have that as you know your your first leading guidepost, then decisions fall um, with with that as your framework. 
Um, and so right. I think that that begins to permeate every aspect of the organization. You know, and I think, you know, second, um, you know, from a um, uh, uh, collaboration standpoint, you know, I think of support and, you know, being a supportive owner is also being, you know, the, uh, being in a collaborative, you know, position. So, you know, talking to the fans, as you mentioned, um, on the branding, um, you know, being, you know, open to, you know, ideas from all sorts of, you know, constituents, um, you know, in, in and around the Kansas City metro. Um, and then lastly, investment. Um, you know, we, we, I started off, you know, we, we plan to heavily invest in this team in fan engagement, you know, in the overall game day experience. Um, and we think that that'll go a long way. That, that's what people who I think, in our opinion, really, really want to see is another, you know, incredible, pro sport franchise in in, in in our town. That game day experience is going to be so important, right? Um, and that's something Chris and Angie mentioned repeatedly. Uh, it's such a big part of it. Just, you know, this is, if this is oversimplified, it's not by much. It's like, do you have fun when you go to these games? Is it worth the time and money you spend to do it? And they feel confident that they can do that at T-Bone Stadium. And, and there's an elephant in the room here and it's about sporting Kansas City. And I know... I hear you guys, uh, a lot of you think it's BS that Sporting won't partner up here or at least, you know, open Children's Mercy Park. And I've got an un unpopular take, I guess, um, but I disagree for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, first, like Sporting is not like some wildly uh, profitable business. Um, I get that the ownership group has some deep pockets, but, you know, all sports teams lost a ton of money in 2020. And the outlook for 2021 is in some ways just as bad. Um, you know, I've heard from sources that, you know, sporting and this goes before this this news this week, but I've been hearing that sporting had a women's team in its long term plans, you know, like three to five years. Um, but I'm, I'm not just I'm just not sure how fair or logical it is to demand that they be like an angel investor here or something. You know, I, I get that Children's Mercy Park would be a good place for uh, the NWSL team to play. But opening that stadium costs money. And, you know, there's already two teams there with schedules that aren't made yet. That's a lot of dates. Um, you know, there's just a lot of moving parts. And if I can go one step further, um, like I didn't hear anybody demanding the Royals save the T-Bones when they were in financial trouble a few years ago. Um, nobody's telling the Chiefs they need to bankroll the, the women's semi-pro football team here, the Storm. Um, so, you know, this NWSL team, they're, they're going to work or not on their own. And I think that's how it should be, right? Don't you? Like, um, and I have to tell you, like, um, the, the skepticism that I had when I heard this news about starting a new team, like right in the middle of the pandemic, um, th that skepticism was not insignificant, right? But it gets chipped away. Um, slowly but surely, when you, when you talk to Angie and Chris, when you talk to Hugh Williams, um, who will coach the team and the people who know the longs, um, you know, like th there's no guarantees, right? Like this thing could fail for reasons, you know, in or out of the longs control. Sports are a weird business. And that's particularly true for newer leagues, like without the, you know, established and traditional holds with fans of, you know, Major League Baseball or the NBA or the NFL or whatever. Um, but the longs are impressive, you guys. They, they are young. They are smart. Uh, they've been successful starting and running their own business before. Um, they care deeply about soccer and, and probably even deeper about Kansas City. They, you know, like if you could create an ownership group that would make this work, they would look a lot like the Longs. Um, it's going to be cool to see what they can do with this. Uh, I'm going to give them the last word here about what they want to build here. I mean, I think creating 
a lasting brand and another team the, that you think of when you think of the fabric of Kansas City. You know, like the, the Chiefs have done and the Royals have done and Sporting have done. We're, we're that fourth team, and um, we're laying the groundwork now to, to create that. Okay, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening. I hope we're worth your time. And if I could impose one more time, I hope we're worth subscribing to, rating, and reviewing. It really helps us get the word out. Thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this together. Thanks to Angie and Chris for their time and insight. Thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to this week. And again, the biggest thanks to you for listening. Uh, Let's do it again next week. Have a good weekend. Be kind.